The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. And this week, we're in Lima, Peru, to try a delicious purple corn beer, ceviche, and pisco sours. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hi, welcome to the winemakers. Hey, I'm a little high there. I'm not high. I mean, the, the uh, levels are a little bit high on my microphone. <laughs> well, that's well, an opening there. Well, right. Yeah, welcome to the winemakers. We are in Sonoma today. Uh, I'm here with Bart Hansen. And Bart, we got an interesting show today. This is, uh, we, we are not sitting down with a winemaker. We're sitting with someone who does a very interesting business centered around the wine industry that I would guess, you know, we tend to, because we're around it um, here in Sonoma, tend to know um, a lot of the businesses that are that are outside of the normal winery business, but that are still centered in the wine industry. Um, so some people may know Leo. I know I've seen Leo around town for years, um, having worked here for, for 10 years and heard his name, uh, but honestly never really knew what he did until you and I ran into him that one day at Sonoma's Best, and right. we just started having a conversation about, I think, Verdello and climate change and um, Verdejo, or um, maybe that's what it was. And, Who was it? And that was your <clears throat> your suggestion for growers to start planting in... Oh, Vermentino. Vermentino. Oh, okay. Yes, Vermentino yeah. was one of the new varieties for climate change. Right. Yeah, and I thought, well, Bart, this, we got to get him on the show because of the stuff he's talking about. Bart said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So eventually, we made it happen. And uh, Bart, why don't you... Go ahead and introduce our guests and let them know how this all started. So we, we have Leo McCluskey, the founder of Enologics, and um, Doug McKesson is the general manager here. Um, I first came into knowledge of Enologics when I worked at Benziger. Um, we were um, starting to do a lot more small production, um, trying to um, raise the bar more direct to consumer, trying to make better wines, quite frankly. Um, and you guys, uh, we became a client of yours for a few years. Um, the different, we had three different winemakers that were making wine at Benziger at what, the time. What year is this? This would have been uh, probably 1990, 91 maybe. Wow. I, start, I started at Benziger in 98. Maybe it was a little bit later, I guess, now when I think about it. Probably about 97, 98. Okay, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I mean, you guys were probably obviously talking before I actually started, but it was right about the t also the time when the biodynamic program started. Um, Joe Benziger was making the imagery wines. Uh, Mike Benziger was making the 
um, tribute wines, and then Terry Nolan was in charge of the uh, brand that was a, a Benziger brand that was sold across the United States. And um, uh, what Leo was essentially doing is, well, I'm going to let you describe what you guys do because I will butcher it and I want people to really have a good understanding on, on what you guys do and how you help wineries make better wine. Is that, is that my introduction? Well, I've got, I might have to turn to Doug McKesson here who's these days knows a little bit more than I do, but I, I, as you are I, kind of semi-retired, aren't you? Semi-retired, you know, yeah. I'm in here pretty regularly, but I bring a lot of coffee right. and uh, <laughs> breakfast goodies, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, back, recalling back in uh, those days and what was, what was happening is the wine industry had grown up. I had started um, as a cellar worker at Ridge Vineyards in the 71 vintage and that uh, wine was in the Paris tasting and the judgment of Paris it took fifth place so it wasn't the best effort uh, that Ridge was Paul Draper the winemaker then and that was Paul Draper's first year and that was my first year and uh, so we were both I remember those days we were working for David Benyon the founder and he was the winemaker the previous year and being a winemaker, uh, he seemed to be quite in charge, uh, equally in charge of things. And then there was a transition to Paul uh, by 72, as I recall. <clears throat> and so these wineries emerged, and I saw Ridge, I was right there, and they wondered, um, how could this early stage success not be repeated? Uh, just like in somebody who writes a novel, uh, you know, they write a novel in their 20s, and then they are, they're trying to repeat that, you know, at their late stage. Right. A lot of times in music, when you put out a first record and it's very successful and the second one's not, they call it, what, the sophomore slump? So kind of yeah. the same idea. Sort of the same idea in the arts. Right. So, you know, the winery business was the arts. Uh, people really believed that they were making it themselves, the wine. Um, so uh, and then this became a crisis within the industry. Uh, people were really shocked when Robert Mondavi emerged. Uh, people in the Santa Cruz Mountains were. Uh, Paul Masson was down there. It was sort of a center of the, of the revival of the wine industry. David Bruce was down there. Uh, Mount Eden. Lots of lots of little companies. Uh, uh, and so Robert Mondavi came in and he decided to use standards. And the standards were he was going to use his white wine was going to be from. Burgundy and his red wine was going to be from Bordeaux and he he did that and that revolutionized the industry people didn't see it that way they I think they thought that he would also have an early stage success and then fade away but he didn't he became a mentor to people Uh, he created standards Uh, it was revolutionary when uh, they brought together a partnership with Opus One and what did you mean by that when he's when you said the 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 white was going to be from Burgundy and the red was going to be from Bordeaux? Well, I think uh, Robert Madavi went to Stanford University. He was a keen businessman, very great marketer, and he wanted to stand next to power in the wine industry, money in the wine industry, ratings in the wine industry. So he stood next to these two products, and it was sort of a classic Silicon Valley uh, marketing strategy: you stand next to the money. And so he stood next to the money in white wine, which was Chardonnay. Right. And so at that point, he had basically said that this is what he was going to establish his company on was Chardonnay and Cabernet. Chardonnay and Cabernet. That's correct. To to go against the two, in his mind, the two finest red wines to put his mark out there. 
I mean, you know, or French fi- wines. Fi- finest white and finest red. Right, correct. Yeah. Exactly. And this, the, in the same period here, around 85, we had the Wine Spectator magazine here in Boys Hot Springs, right? Just north of here. Right. Isn't that right? I do not remember that at the time I was 15. Yeah, I, I mean, I was about the same age as you were, but... Um, yeah, I think it was started, or the, uh, there was an iteration of it here before Marvin Schenken purchased it. And um, remember, um, I'm going to, Doug, uh, who had the Pinot Report, Doug Walters. Um, he Greg, was Walters? The, Greg Walters? Greg Walters was the, the editor of it for a number of years, and he lived here in Sonoma or Napa. And, um, but at any rate, to, you can go on with your point there. Yeah, so the, then the ratings appeared. Because there were so many products uh, making equal claims, not that they weren't all great wines, but there could, it was impossible that they were all great. Uh, and then there were a lot of experimental wines, wines that had Britannomyces. Uh, people began, Americans began inoculating wines with Britannomyces to make a strength out of a weakness. And wow. um, do, why do you think that was? Do, <clears throat> sorry, do you think it was to make it taste a little more similar to some French wines that they had had? You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't think there's a good answer, business answer to that. And I'd like to. I would re, restrain my answer and, and just say that I don't think it was good business to do that. But yeah. somehow, uh, the leadership within the industry did go off that direction. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they were probably chasing styles and trying to figure out. I mean, they. And again, I don't know this for sure, but they knew Britannomyces was a something that you know French wines had. Um, and in certain cases, it made the wine better, but in too much, it you know. But it was also stylistic. Some people to this day would like a wine, you know, that has a little bit of Brett, and yeah. some people, you know, don't like it at all. So, but I don't think we ever knew how to control it. Probably when they were um, uh, inoculating it with it, right. um, you know. Same with ML. There was probably you know wasn't any ML really used during those early days until. Well, I think uh, Hansel and Bob Sessions has, you know, s- um, something to do with that. So, um, so go, go on. So I had left the wine industry, I'll, a little sidebar here. I had left the wine industry for about three years. I had risen up to be president of a company. I had uh, become very interested in shedding the winemaker job I had for eight years. And I became president of the company. Uh, We had a shareholder who came in from New York uh, to this company, and he said, you know, I'll turn you into a businessman. And uh, so that was very interesting for me. Uh, My family had been in business in San Francisco, and uh, I sort of developed a high finance interest in the wine industry, you know, macroeconomics of the business. And so I left the industry for three years to make a discovery, learn a new model from outside of the industry that involved predictive models, the first predictive models. And it, it wasn't any kind of uh, great inspiration on my part. I think this is what was happening in California, that people were going to use computers to analyze big data, and the computing power was mushrooming, and I could buy a computer that had the power to do what a supercomputer would do in the past. And so we, we connected the color, flavor, fragrance of wine, the the natural product flavors that were in the wine, and we did correlation coefficients. I would call that R, 
there's even software now uh, for R, for mining using statistics. So you look for correlations between the things that the winemakers wanted and uh, the chemistry and price and ratings. And pretty soon we were looking at barrels and row direction. Anything that could be a number could be put in the database. So you could query then the database and ask which chemistry was correlated with high prices, high profits, high uh, scale, high volume. And how were you building that database of wines? Was it just simply purchasing wines that had some sort of pedigree or tradition or uh, and then mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. and then running tests on them sure so what we did was we started to buy bottled wines that were in the marketplace the benchmarks by which everybody was judging wines Domaine Barenth Rothschild uh, Duarte Milan uh, Dick Graff was a close friend of mine and he was the first CEO of a publicly held wine company the Shalone Wine Group um, and there's a, there's a story in 1989, I was parking my car at uh, 4th and Mission Street across from St. Patrick's Catholic Church. Uh, they're on Mission, and I'm walking down, uh, I think I walked down to 2nd, because this was my old haunt. I worked in the city, and my father owned a company on Howard Street, and we walked past the old building up to Stewart Street, and I said, you know, I'll be ready in 30 minutes. And he goes, wait, how can you be ready in 30 minutes? This is the CEO of... Shalone. I mean, aren't you going to spend spend a little time with him? And uh, but I was. I said, well, he's going to throw me out of the office when I tell him what we've got. And we had looked at bottled wine tastings by winemakers and collected scores. And I told him that I could predict the outcome of a blind tasting by winemakers, all of his staff, uh, if he assembled them before they did the tasting. And what was the reaction to that? <laughs> so he, he, Graf, Graf and I had worked together on a project at Mount Eden. I had helped him a bit at Shalone. We were pretty close, and, um, and we had uh, a good working relationship. And he said, Leo, yeah, you do have to leave, but not because I don't believe you, but, but because it must be true. Uh, and he said, look, come back in two weeks. So we went back and uh, he said, this is what, I thought about this carefully, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to call uh, Eric Solom at uh, Barons Rothschild Banking in Paris and we're going to ask him just straight ahead to hire you. So uh, Rothschilds hired us and we got to see, uh, you know, all the vintages, I think it was from 79 through 91 of Chateau Lafitte uh, Duarte Milan, uh, Carwads, the second label of Lafitte, Le- eventually L'Evangile and other properties in the, and then also the properties in the Americas, uh, the, all the Shalone properties. So all pretty soon we were gathering up this data and I realized that this was an old economic model, the French system. They had classified it, Napoleon III had classified France for a expo in 1855 and so there were property ratings for Bordeaux, for Burgundy, to a lesser extent the Rhone. So so all the time that they're collecting all this data, you're assembling it. You're still buying wine here locally and assembling it. And I remember when I was introduced to it and we were given access to the, the database and you could go in and you could put your wines 
and compare them to the wines that he's mentioning and get data technical analysis and see how you compared to it and 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 that was um really intriguing you know to think that it had certain aspects certain tannin levels and and profiles as um you, you your, your the wines that you want to aspire to be but this has got to be a holy shit moment for for some people when they hear this right i mean it's got to be a I mean, were you considered a disruptor a little bit? For sure. Was that, it was pretty disruptive, right, Doug? <laughs> I think that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the beginning, we were uh, very disruptive, but I was invited to the Chicago Quantitative Group to give a keynote speech at Las Vegas one year, and uh, I was really petrified. I go, why am I going to this? This is all quant people, they called themselves the quants, who had been involved in the Black Shoals trading model on the Chicago Board of Trade that then uh, became the trading models uh, for the hedge funds in New York uh, today. And, uh, you know, they had me there as a speaker. I think Jared Diamond was there and I was on stage and we both gave talks. And he said, we were just interested because it's, we just get a big laugh out of how an industry like the wine industry must react to big data. That you have this unequivocal data, you can predict the outcome before the winemaker conducts the wine growing and the winemaking. And so it said that it was so disruptive to the marketing that the winemaker was doing that this was a, his creation. This was the California dream where migrants come in from out of state, they give the family back home the chop, and by the time we meet them, they're actors and winemakers, and they're uh, they're real characters. They're like they're movie stars, and so the winemakers were movie stars. Hollywood was that way. Steve Jobs is like a movie star. You know, they're bigger than life, and you never hear about uh, anything other than the future life that they want to create. And you know, so many winemakers wanted to create a new life in the rural areas. I think that didn't involve working in high tech and, and working on the old family farm back in Appalachia or wherever people came from. So yes, it was disruptive to the California dream, which is the American dream. But it reminds me a lot of the movie Moneyball where, you know, Billy Bean is sitting around the table and they're talking about who they're going to pick up this year because they lost, you know, Giambi and those guys. And, and, and he's saying, well, we, how about this guy? And he says, no, no, that guy, he kind of bats funny. He says, yeah, but he gets on base. It reminds me of that where you're basically saying, doesn't matter who's making the wine, if you follow these steps at the end of the process, you will have a high-scoring wine. And, and if you're having a high-scoring wine, as now is it solely based on Robert Parker's palate, or is this just based on general consensus out there in the industry as far as getting high score in whatever, whether it's wine spectator or enthusiast or whatever it is? I believe what I've learned is that people have good taste, that everybody can taste. Uh, about two thirds of the males can taste, and about a third of the male population are the equivalent of colorblind, or as is to taste. So there's quite a large population of winemakers that are can't taste very well, and women in particular have, are extremely sensitive. Maybe twice, five times more than males in terms of aroma. So if everybody has good taste, you could gather winemaker ratings, you could look at Robert Parker's ratings, but you could predict his scores knowing the winemaker's blind tasting scores. And so generally for Robert Parker, I mean, what people think of out there is um, big wine, low acid, 
uh, high pH. I don't know. Yeah. Higher I mean, on the pH kind of, side. That, that was in his wheelhouse. Certainly wines that did right. well with Robert Parker in those days were um, lower acid, higher pH, very extracted wines. I mean, and, and we, he wasn't just him. There, that was just kind of was a growing trend. And, um, but it was also a matter of tannin. And, and I think part of what is being missed here is that it's not just data. I mean, this starts in the vineyard because you, right. the grapes give you a certain amount of information and you can't make, um, you can't make Napa Valley wine from Fresno Cab. You can't make Napa Valley Cab from Fresno Cab. I think we would all agree upon that. But now with the information that you're co collecting, there are certain areas where you might see aspects um, that are similar that might help you make better wine from um, Fresno Cabernet. Is that fair to say? I don't think you could make a great I, Cabernet that you would recognize uh, as a brother or in the family of Bordeaux. Right. It's interesting. I mean, we're talking here, we're about to go down a road of explaining maybe how big data uh, is sort of evil or big data is sort of, you know, let's debate it. But let me throw in something else into the mix. Currently, there's a new problem in California. Originally, the problem was predicting what was the fundamental basis of fine wine. And I think our success with hundreds of companies uh, shows that the success comes from a, a suite of compounds in red wines that, yeah, they can be some pretty big wines, but wines that are also too big, uh, like Tempranillo or some of the Petit Syrahs, these are wines that are too dark. These are not as good as the more mid-range Cabernets. So what's the new problem now? Now we know that those who adopted big data to look at color, flavor, fragrance and embraced the, the movement that we introduced to wine, that they have run away with the money in the industry. So Napa Valley today is an incredibly flexible, resilient powerhouse. They have gone from 45% Chenin Blanc in 1975 then with Robert Mondavi going to Chardonnay, where Chardonnay plantings exceeded Cabernet plantings up through, what year would you say, Doug? 76? I think, I think it was more like late 90s, where it switched, where Cabernet then exceeded. Oh, where, the, where the switch was, yeah, it was late 80s, yeah. 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 So what happened then is Napa made another switch. They were so flexible. They went from Chenin Blanc to Chardonnay, now to Cabernet, and now from Cabernet, 100% Cabernets, I would say most of the top producers are doing 75% Cabernet, and we have been a leader in introducing new varieties to blend with Cabernet to improve uh, the wines because of the coming failings of Cabernet that are starting to appear in the market, chinks in the armor of Cabernet growing, wine growing. And this new uh, frontier, this really disruptive new information is something the industry is not talking about also. Now it's climate change. It's climate change in California. The trigger that winemakers can't control and that growers can't control, uh, that nobody can control 
in the wine industry who's got decision-making power is the optimum temperature set by the grapes genetically. And the optimum temperature of Cabernet is, what's our range now? 17, 75 to 18 and a quarter degrees centigrade. Uh, we're using international standards now. We're gonna introduce that for all of our climate work. And so what's, why this is important is that the, the winery can change or the wine grower can change the uh, conditions around the vine. They can lower the temperature by having sprinklers and misters from 100 degrees on a 100 degree day down to 70 on a 110 degree day in the, in the area of the leaves. But they can't change the optimum temperature of that Cabernet. They can't change the intensity and the rates of change of temperature uh, during the day and during the night here in California. And so currently, the regions of California that are well known for wine, many of these regions will be too hot in the future. And we've talked about this. What, what do you do? And, and it's not just us. This is in other parts of the world as well. And some of the most famous wine growing regions that we know are having to face this same issue, correct? Correct, right. Yeah. And what's interesting is uh, this is a, a criticism. Uh, I think it's fair, fair to lob this out there. I think our academic institutions have not been at the forefront of climate change research. And you have to ask, why is that? Is that happenstantial? Uh, is it that people uh, associated with Central Valley agribusiness who are in the beverage industry do not want New York media to know that it's too hot in the Central Valley for Chardonnay? and it's going to be too hot for Cabernet. Um, I think that's the reason. I think that there are political forces and lobbying forces and considerable forces at work to smother and restrain the, the story. And I think, I think we could all agree here that there is an omerta, a code of silence about climate change and wine. I think we're a little bit luckier though, I would think here in California in that we could be a little more fluid as opposed to someplace like Burgundy, Bordeaux, Champagne, where there is thousands of years of tradition of them doing one thing and one thing great. Whereas we sort of have been, you know, we're the new kids on the block that are, like you said, in Napa, you know, you got a bunch of Chenin Blanc and then you go to Chardonnay and then you go to Cab and we kind of get to figure out what works. Whereas they've set up a system where this is what grows here. This is the way we do it. These are the rules that we have to be that we have to conform to. Now, what happens in those areas when the climate changes to the point of it not being optimal for those grapes? It's very interesting. You know, Macron gave a balling out to Trump and uh, he really let him have it. He said, he put his foot down. He took that French stance, that really power stance where he's disagreeing with his body language. And he said, you know, Mr. Trump, you're talking about trade. You're talking about globalization, certainly. Globalization is what Cabernet is about. Cabernet is a global variety. Chardonnay is a global variety. We are in the global uh, wine industry, part of globalization. We're not growing idiosyncratic grapes like Vermentino here. We're not growing Primitivo, at least the same clones that are growing in Sicily. We're not growing the other varietals that are European grapes. And Macron said this, he said, we're uninterested in this thing about trade and, and being a globalist. We're interested in the community. We're interested in the community of France protecting the regional wines. And so 
this inflexibility he would consider is worth it because it's protecting the social structure, the social network. Uh, imagine what's going to happen if companies here uh, start moving to Oregon and Washington. All those jobs are going to be gone. The community here will be weakened. Uh, there'll be large beverage companies stationed in uh, Napa Valley that will just pick up and go. Whereas the, those of us who are pinned down are looking for resilience. We're looking for ways to make our vineyard business more resilient to climate change. And so I think the other option here is that we could plant a new variety in, uh, this would be a pretty radical idea, but I think it will occur, um, that they will plant new grape varieties in Napa Valley. And when New York media sees Napa plant that grape, whatever the white is, and plant these other reds, they'll say that's the right move. Hmm. That's what's going to happen, I think. I mean, I, th I think it will be very interesting because, um, as you say, it's getting too warm to grow Cabernet. Um, Cabernet is a huge um, cash cow for Napa Valley. Um, and it, they're going to, you know, part of me wonders is, is that part of the reason why um, the style of Cabernet is possibly changing back to a, you know, less overripe, less extracted wine and trying to um, be able to pick grapes a little bit earlier and um, not push it so much uh, as to not have to deal with as much heat and whatnot, I, I, you know don't know that really made any sense what was coming out of my mouth you know i think it's pretty I'm kind of stretching i'm stretching here you yeah know? i think it's a good stretch yeah i think at the end of the day it's about quality and right. i think that's what winemakers are doing and i think this this notion of the big parkerized wine that's that so big i think it was you know through the starting in the 90s when phenolics the class of chemicals that we're talking about that contribute to color flavor fragrance came on the scene all of a sudden, it, it, it creates a bunch of experimentation and innovation. And I think to the point we just, you know, the first thing you do is you kind of floor it and see right. at you what point it. do the diminishing returns right. outweigh. Right. And, and know, I, guess the, what I, I guess what I was saying is, is now are we getting to the point where they reach the diminishing returns? It's starting to come back a little bit possibly. And is that, is that good for them because of climate change? Because they're not waiting as long. Um, or does it really make a difference at all? Maybe it doesn't. I don't when know if it's necessarily related. You know, I think what we're seeing, what, what gets us interested in it is we're seeing tremendous amount of volatility in a lot of the numbers that we see uh, early in the wine's life, in the, in, you know, in the vineyards and, and what have you. And then we start digging a little bit more into, you know, looking at temperature trends and, and things like that. And I'd say that, you know, our, our consulting for our core business started this kind of new effort and endeavor that we're that that we're doing around around climate change over the past couple of years okay can we go back a sec i'm kind of curious so as to what are the indicators that you're um tracking in a wine and how many are there mm -hmm. <clears throat> in reds um i would say they're almost the most important ones are taste compounds Red wines have unique ratings features. There are traditional ratings going back a thousand years since medieval times, um, since ancient times. The, there's quality. Uh, Pliny the Elder talked about quality in 200 AD, 300 AD. 
There's the style of wines. He also talked about that. They talked about Amarones and how they dried the grapes in barns through January and then they fermented them in January and uh, versus the wines of Greece and the Mediterranean. Uh, so their style, uh, styles of wine, I think are legitimate. If you want a rosé and you get a really dark Tempranillo, you're not happy with that if you're a shopper. You know, you want a rosé, you want a rosé. So that this is a very big style difference, and it isn't about quality, is it? You know, the purchase is about style. And then there's a shelf life, aging potential, freshness indexes. And reds have a high degree of resilience, and it will age basically around eight years. I think that's uh, safe. I think to say they go 16 years is, as uh, was Biden's bust say, malarkey. But... It's just not useful to say 16 years to, to the consumer. So say eight years for some reds, four years for other reds, maybe four years for a Pinot, five years, California Pinot. Uh, and then Chardonnay, you know, California Chardonnays, boy, once they're bottled, I think they have to be drunk in 18 months. I don't think yeah. they're good for more than one year. So this is a huge risk, uh, <clears throat> Chardonnay right now. You can see... California Chardonnays are not good wines to put in restaurants. I mean, it's pretty risky. Um, so, you know, I, th I think that these, uh, the number of compounds in whites is very few in terms of taste, but many in terms of aroma. So that's the big difference between reds and whites. Right. And they're not even overlapping. The compounds that drive quality and reds are distinct and not overlapping with those that drive quality of whites. Right. And that's a provocative statement because I think people speak about reds and whites, winemakers do in the same breath, with the same creative, they're saying the same creative forces. It's true, they do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now if you're, if you're testing a wine, can you take one the older vintages so I guess I'm wondering if you can take a wine that has, let's say it's been around for 20 years. You've got a Burgundy, um, <clears throat> a DRC wine that's, that's been right. around for 20 years. I've done this, yes. Okay, and so then you can test it, but then what is the difference? What does that wine look like when, when it's first released, and then what does it look like when it's been aged for 20 years? What are the big differences that you're seeing when you're doing mm -hmm. tests on it? Mm -hmm. Well, all old wines have a magic, uh, black magic of, that gets going. You know, if, you're, if it's Christmas Eve and you have four wine drinkers and, you know, a cigar or something, I don't know, you, you, you can get pretty riled up about how magical the moment is how much black magic's in that. Yeah. So an old Burgundy is pretty interesting. Its aromas are just, they're fantastic. You've got four men or, you know, men and women, and they're just so excited about, you know, having a drink. So, and it's a, it's a great time to do that. But I would uh, say you could do some forensics on what they were. The, knowing the chemistry of a 15-year-old wine, you can backtrack and estimate what the color, flavor, fragrance of it was when it was born. Right. So you can know that from its, uh, we have a suite of uh, six measurements that we're using. So we can reconstruct the color of the wine from a colorless compound that we measure that happens to be created from the colored compounds. So uh, the wine, uh, basically, the, the, the broadly for the listener, the red pigment of wine is what gives it its uh, resilience in terms of aging potential. So when you smell one uh, eight-year-old wine that smells fresh, 
and uh, its aroma smells fresh, it has antioxidant uh, levels of red pigments. Whereas a very light pale red, say like a light Morvedra, uh, that might uh, be pretty far over the hill at eight years. Right. So its aroma profile would be that of an old Madeiraized wine, as if it had been in the hold of a ship, you know, at 90 degrees going to India. I mean, it could be, it could be very, very common. You know, aging uh, is a great equalizer. It just puts a lot of wrinkles in the wine that are all the same. You know, they cover up the, the original beauty and freshness of the aroma. Now, Bart, do you remember when we were talking on the show one week about that uh, winery that was over, I think it was in Oakland, AVA it was called? Yes. And they were synthesizing wines. So with just the use of distilled spirit and then just doing additives, and they claimed, and I don't know how far they got because the last time we looked them up, I mean, this is like three years ago that they started. Last time we looked them up, it didn't look like they had... Gotten, there was no recent press, no so recent we assume they didn't have any it. success. But, but their claim was that, that at when they would get up and running, they would get to a point where they could synthesize, you know, uh, you could do a, a 1918 Bordeaux from a specific region, that they could break that wine down and then sort of rebuild it using... using I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't using wine. Using, it was actually using, using, science. using science. Right. Yeah. That's just one of those... California cliches, you know, it's a dark and stormy night and I did this, you know, in the evening I have synthetic wine. Here we have in California, everybody uh, has, the, has their, their own story. You know, they have no ancestors. They're, they're all self-made, one-of-a-kind people <laughs> and they, they can say anything and it kind of gets on the nerves of Europeans who come here. They just don't believe it. Uh, it they would know about this if it was existing in Stockholm and Paris and Berlin, but this doesn't work elsewhere in the world. It's a California marketing story to monetize something, I think. Yeah. Well, let's go back to Shalom. Let's go back to that time. So when you discover that you, you've got this database and you think that you can help people make better wine, who do you, who, who do you approach first and, and, and who's interested? Who's interested? We, um, originally the way we got, uh, Shalom, uh, as a, as a company came, uh, after we had approached 12 companies in the United States, uh, in Oregon, Washington, and California, and we had these 12 companies, one in Napa, and we called, I proactively called uh, one company, and that was Joseph Phelps. And um, we had the company under the radar. It was called McCloskey Arrhenius and Company. Mm -hmm. We would call that Max. We had a McCloskey Arrhenius and X would be whoever we were working with. We had the head of the math department at the University of California. We had the head of the chemistry department as uh, co-partners for a while. And so we, we needed companies so that we could get data and so that we could create a data company. First thing we did was we, we lowered our consulting rates and because I had been at Ridge and several companies, people were interested in getting the consulting. And then we had a licensing agreement. I was lawyered up pretty heavily. I had intellectual property lawyers. I have some patents from an earlier period in wine chemistry. And uh, so we realized that this data model was coming, the kind of Salesforce type company, companies that are working with big data. What they do is they license the user. So we already knew we were going to license the user mm. and we simply asked them this, we're going to give you some free data, super cheap consulting. Uh, you just get this whole package from us. It was too, 
too sweet to turn down. And people signed these legal agreements with my intellectual property lawyers. They gave up all the rights to all the data that I had. Every ounce of data, I, they said, what are you gonna get the data on? And I said, bottled wines. Any bottled wine you purchase or submit to me, any product you submit to me, I own it all, not you. But you can have your data. And uh, it was a very scientific kind of industry. We get, they were glad to get the data at a low, low cost. And then we had all this big data. And the big data contained uh, math. You could use mathematics to see what was the line in an XY plot between wine spectator scores and what the winemakers were using as barrels, what they were using as row direction. What were the parameters that were connected to scores? And rather than insulting the spectator or assuming that they were wrong or they were bad, we, we said, they must be right. They must be sensitive. They must be onto something. They must be doing something that the wine industry should have done. And you know, I've always believed that the wine industry, if it had only rated itself and limited itself, it would have been a more powerful industry. It would have controlled its destiny in terms of appellations. Um, so you're talking about more the French model? Yeah, I'm more the French model. Um, you know, I do believe in ratings. I believe that each region should only have legislated in to a few varieties, a few genetic pieces of genetic material. That would be way more powerful um, if we did that. Sonoma County is a great example of not doing that and violating the central dogma of the wine industry, which is to specialize. So say right. in the Rhone, you know, they have a couple reds, right? Five reds. In, in Bordeaux, they have nine. They have a, a powerful suite of wines. In Burgundy, I think, what do they have? One? Well, th th three. For the reds? Oh, for the reds. Uh, I don't know if you count Gamay, but yeah. Yeah. I think you're, if you're a Gamay, you have to stay in that appellation. Right. So you get, uh, you get placed in these buckets, and of course, now you can legislate and try and change those, and the Europeans are doing that now, but you know, it does give you enormous branding power because you are the Pinot Noir region. So if somebody had done that in California, they would have been the region. But of course, their neighbors fought them off. You know, you have a neighbor down the road in Sonoma County who thinks it's the best Vermentino region. You have another one who thinks it's the best Zinfandel region. So that's a problem, you know, the democracy of wine. Yeah, and originally, I mean, what do we have, 17 AVAs in Sonoma County, 43 different varieties growing? Um, you know, but some people say that's our greatest, our, 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 the most charming thing about it is you can find, you know, all of these wines here um, as opposed to Napa where you pretty much go and you only find Cabernet yeah. everywhere. And, I, you know, I understand what you, where you're coming from, Leo, but I think also for, you know, John Q. Public who um, th th they're looking to come here and discover new things. And uh, we might lose people if all we grew were Pinot and Chardonnay. In well, or our food might adapt to meet that variety that we did plant. It would be sort of a chicken and the egg story there. All of a sudden you would have dishes and restaurants specialized in that. It would be very difficult for Napa to grow any of those varieties. <laughs> Right. I mean, I've, I know I've always had a problem with, you know, when they I love when they interview Psalms. I don't know if it was Wine Spectator or Enthusiast or something one year and they were they were um, interviewing Psalms over in Napa about their their favorite 
wine and food pairing. And, and some of the Psalms were so embarrassed because they said, I'm looking at these Cabernet vineyards right outside the window of the restaurant and I'm not recommending any of those <laughs> to be paired with the foods on the menu. So it's sort of a weird, weird thing over there. Yeah. And, there the, and there is no doubt that when you go to France, when you're in Burgundy, the food is very different than when you go to Bordeaux. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the industry is going to evolve again uh, because of this climate. So that's going to be very, very, very disruptive. I mean, what kind of time frame are we talking about? I mean, that's the, the, the big question. Is, I mean, I guess it depends who you ask. Within 20 years? Within 20 years, what, how, how much of a swing are we talking about? I think in 20 years, we will see no grapes from Bakersfield, from the... Is that called the grapevine there that comes yep. down? Yep. From, from the grapevine up through Merced, I think there'll be no more wine production in that area. It's just going to roll up the whole valley, and it's going to go up through Fresno, and we're going to get to great difficulty in Lodi. The temperature from Lodi uh, to Napa is going to change dramatically. The rainfall is going to fall from 30 inches to 21 inches, and that space that geographical space from Sacramento to the Bay, the San Francisco Bay, this side of Antioch is all gonna be one temperature. It's all gonna be uniform. There's gonna be incursion of the heat from the continent, you know, the deserts and the Central Valley will come into the Bay Area. And the winds are changing. You know, there were huge winds for windsurfing out at Antioch. And those are gone. They don't exist. There's no more windsurfing stores out there. Right. And in, in, uh, in Rio Vista. That was in Rio huge. Vista. Yeah, huge. it is. It's all kind of gone now. It's gone, it? yeah. So, yeah, I think it's, it's uh, happening. Um, the problem in California are the mountains. We are doing a talk in the Santa Cruz Mountains coming up, and we're looking at what we can see. We were going to show you these if this was a television show, but uh, maybe next time. They, uh, you know, it, it looks just so difficult in some of these regions um it it is going to be a real challenge to make wine in some of these regions so who's listening to you on this i mean we know people like let's say tegan pasalacqua winemaker for turley and sandlands who's actually just moved down to the lodi area kind of set up shop but he's a small guy so you've got people like what is it gallo and mandavi that have been established down there now are they are they listening to this and saying let's start to plan an exit strategy you know, we haven't, we're, the product that we're developing, we're interested in productizing something, is a mapping system that would tell the wine grower what should be occurring at a given, say, two-week period during the growing season from April to October. And we're going to uh, be focusing on water. We're going to focus on changing the bloom to harvest dates, uh, things that will really help the farmers, the wine growers. Mm. So those companies that are vertically integrated where they are, are wine growers and winemakers. A company like, say, the, the, the Getty group of wineries, uh, Odette, Plump Jack, Cade, these companies really benefit from working with us because um, we can predict what grape to plant in the vineyard, what the mix is. If we are replanting now, we're gonna live into a higher temperature. It will be, in this vineyard, in order to extend its life by as much as 40% um, if you plant the right grape mix, the right rootstock, and if you plant the right row direction and you're set up to change the temperature during heat storms in the vineyard. Uh, the other thing is we're specializing. Um, these companies that we work with, we recommend people make one single red. 
one white. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait this is a real thing. This, this is the real this is, thing. This comes out of your mouth in the initial meeting when you're doing a consultation for someone? This is what we recommend doing. That a company, a family company, can only survive if they make one red, one single national release, one special reserve wine that is sold at the winery, and uh, a white uh, that could be on a national release, and maybe one other white. It could be a champagne. Maybe four products for their tasting room, major products. And uh, I think this can really work. You get economies of scale. You become experts at what you're doing. You, 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 when you commit like this, um, you, it's, a, it's, it's about acting. It's all about winemaking's a verb. It's not an idea. It's not a weakness that you need 12 varieties at your tasting room. You really want to make a strength out of having larger batch sizes. How big? 5,000 cases, 3,500 to 7,000 cases of a single national release Cabernet with a local release for the tasting room. 1,500 cases, you know, is a good dream at $200 a bottle or something. And then uh, maybe Sauvignon Blanc in the 30s. And we're looking, we, we're looking for a new white to pair up with our customers. And that's a big effort that we're, we have underway right now. Once we do this, that'll be the white, I think. If you see, if, if we say it's Vermentino and they're doing it and it becomes in widespread use, it's a demand problem. We create a demand problem for our competitors. So that's what we want to be in. We're, we're relatively uh, confident. You know, I, I like to be assertive. If I'm wrong, then I'll find out really quick in this new product, this new climate product, and I'll stop doing it. But, you know, you have to make choices. You have to get people to commit. You have to have strong ideas about planting, planting materials. So the action is definitely moving into the vineyard right now. Hmm. Crazy. Crazy. Uh -huh. <laughs> you see, the profits on uh, a company that can do 7,000 cases at $100 a bottle on a national program. I mean, it's hugely successful. Easy to make, you don't have to work every month. You don't need a big crew. You can have smaller crews around the winery, seasonal company. You know, you're a bit of a seasonal company now. Well, and there are some small wineries who've kind of, you know, said this is what we're making. We had Mountain Tides on and he's only making Petite Syrah. Yeah. And he's doing different, you know, locations and doing yeah. a, um, a rosé from it and yeah. whatnot. And, you know, when we talked to him, he didn't really have any interest in doing something else at this point. Certainly not under Mountain Tides. Mountain Tides is Petit Syrah. You know, it's farming. I come from a family that's been in farming. And you should have a seasonality to it. I think it, should, it would be nice to be able to have a family company that could live on maybe four total products. And uh, it's easy to understand. It's easy to pass on to the next generation. It's easy to sell because... Uh, your sales pitch is, this is it, this is what we have. Not 37 different SKUs in yeah, the tasting and, room. Yeah, and you're, you, know, you have one bottle that's yours, your label's really tricked out, and you're, you just are such a craftsman about this one thing. And that's what the Bordeaux model is. Lafitte has two products. They don't have a white, they just have Carawads de Lafitte and, and Domaine uh, Baron's Rothschild has Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. Hmm. And uh, at L'Evangile, they just have one product. Maybe they have, they must have a, um, a kind of Bordeaux-wide product that they blend. I think there's only one product at Duarte Milan. You know? So I think it's a good idea. I think it's simple, uh, easy to manage. It simplifies the business. I know, but how does that meet up with people that are 
go-getters that just want to grow and just want to, oh no, let's plant this. This will be fun. This will be, I mean. They're going to beat us at this game. They're going to move out of state. You know, the big companies, the Kendall Jacksons are going to buy land elsewhere if they have to. They're not going to be limited and and necessarily uh, communitarians. I mean, they're not going to be. So it's not that they're going to leave here, but they're going to stay here for the products that work here. Right. And the products that don't work here, they'll find another place to grow it. They're going to do that. Yeah. It's inevitable. They're a big business. They're beverage companies. Yeah. And uh, they're, I mean, they're wine companies and they're interesting wine companies, but they're also, uh, they have such huge scale and so many products and they're following this, this line of multiple products, aren't they? See, if I wanted to drink multiple products, I would just go to Europe. Why would I drink uh, all California experimental products? It's very experimental to have all these wines. Yeah. Hmm. And expensive, you know, expensive to buy the grapes because the grower, by doing small lots, uh, you know, you can't grind away it down on the price. You can't reduce the price with a grower because you don't mean anything to him. Two tons, four tons, yeah. even eight tons. It's not much, right, Bart? Right. No, it's not. And, and in fact, you know, you, you, once you have a relationship with a grower and they're willing to peel you off a couple tons and, and work with you, um, picking when you want to pick and, and not just telling you when, when you're picking, I mean, th- those are deep relationships and it takes work. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, there are certain people that I've worked with over the years that, you know, when they start picking, they start picking. And when they get to your section, it's time, you know, and if you don't, if you're not ready, then you move to a different section sometimes. And then there are people that will do whatever you want. You know, they'll mark off your rows and those are your rows. And when you're ready to pick them, if they have time to do it, they'll get to it or else they'll get to it as soon as they can. You know, I mean, that's the whole scheduling thing. I think Ridge is, I mean, I'm thinking of wineries. Ridge is a good example of, they're almost a two grape winery Zinfandel and, and one small Cabernet batch, right? Right. Mostly Zin, Zinfandel. Zin, yeah, Zinfandel. Zinfandel. And, and it's, you know. And they've survived the and they're thriving. Well, they, I think that you're right. They do have sort of a unique business model that they rely on those things. But then they also, it seems to, they seem to explain, expand a little bit every year and doing something. They do a little Carignan or they'll do, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Uh, but, but nothing in the, to the Not case to the, production yeah. that they're doing for those. For the national release. For those national releases, right. yeah. Yeah, I don't have all the answers here. I just, I see what my customers are doing who are thriving. The ones that are thriving are, are working with fewer grape varieties. Hmm. Diamond Creek, uh, who's got a lot of varieties? Uh, Cake Bread has, is a company, but it's, you know, mostly Cabernet and Chardonnay. Right. So, um, you know, you could have multiple vineyards, I guess you could do that, but there's nothing like having a, an estate vineyard that's your flagship vineyard be where everything's flagship. Right. That's what I'm saying. You get a 40, uh, 50, 60, 80, 100 acre vineyard and sell, turn it all into the best Cabernet and uh, don't have all these uh, multiple products. It's impossible to buy grapes and, and make great wine, I think. I mean, in, in Napa now. Because the growers are growing to 90 points. They're maximizing the yield, uh, cutting the inputs as much as they can. And I don't think they grow more than a 90 point grape. So you're already, you know, don't have a, a legitimate partner. The marriage is, is broken because they're working for their family. Wait, you're, you're going to have to explain that. So what do you mean by when you say that they're only growing a 90-point grape? I think that if you look at the yields that growers, 
grow at and the yields that um, a vertically integrated company is growing at. And the you're yield saying tons so, so per acre. You're saying high yields. High, yeah, high. Let's say the range is from two to eight tons per acre in Napa. Is that the range? Yeah, that's the range. And does it ever go to twelve? Yes, it does go to twelve tons per acre, and once in a while in Napa. And I could name the names. I'm not going to do that. And but you know, when you're at eight tons, I mean, you must have. Do you have a? Uh, you know, do you have twelve percent of the quality? of at two tons that's what it should be if you had a ratio because two goes into eight four times mm-hmm. or 25 percent of the quality i think so i think that if you look at the chemistry of these wines that the wines that are at two tons have three or four times the goodies in them flavorants that the wines at four tons have eight tons have right yeah we can see it in our grape numbers yes. during the vintage you can it's just see it we're like oh that 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 vineyard is selling at the napa valley Weighted average price right. per ton. Right. That's about 89 and points. That's it, really, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. I mean. And there's a big quality difference between that and the same company that's making wine with their own estate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The way to get around this is to become important. And the only way to become important uh, to a grower family is to have batch sizes in the, again, five to 7,000 cases. If you could do that say 3,500 to 7,000. Now you need 40 acres, you know, to do that. You need 80 tons, huh? right? Yeah. You need 80 tons, 100 tons. You're out there buying 80, 100 tons. Now the grower is buying you Christmas cards and fruitcakes, and they're taking care of you. Yeah. You even get to go to their harvest party. Well, but, and, you know, they're, and they're dropping fruit for you is what you're saying, too. Uh, they, yeah. may, they may grow to that. I mean, they may cut the buds back to that. Right. That's better for the environment, too, because now the vine is not stressed. These vines that are commercial vines, you know, where the family is growing and selling, those vineyards are pretty weak because with the higher temperatures now, the root systems are, are retracting under the plant. So um, there's real, uh, there's real, the real problems emerging in California, in Napa and Sonoma, especially Sonoma too, uh, due to heat storms. Because these heat storms are just, how many do you think we get in a month? Sometimes 15, right? 14 can happen. Well, th- this year seemed to be, we di- it didn't seem like we had no, any crazy no. heat spikes this, this year. year we no, not as much yeah. as we did in but, yeah. but like we 17. Had, we had but, more sustained warmer weather. But was year, that right? predicted? I mean, did you know that that was the way this year was going to play out? We know that there's a base and that there are, there are so many average number of heat storms and there's a deviation to that. But, you know, we can't predict the weather that carefully. Yeah. But so, you know, I think you have to ensure against that. What happened in the previous year is there were a lot of heat storms. And those heat storms from 2018 hurt the vineyards in Mm -hmm. 2019 dramatically. How it extended the harvest, though it was cool, the harvest should have come earlier because the water availability was better. There was lower temperature, so there was, um, you know, we weren't transpiring all the water out of the leaves and damaging the leaves. So we should have had an earlier harvest. Instead, we had the latest harvest in history since World War II. So how, how do you explain that other than the vines were weakened in the previous year? Right. Each year as we push off the harvest inter- date. I'm sorry, but it's interesting because you're talking about the vines being weakened, but yet it takes longer to get ripe as opposed to you would think it's, it's the vines getting weakened. So it's going to start shutting down and you're going to just get ripeness. 
earlier from that earlier, but, but no, it, every, all this, this climate, uh, stuff has, uh, it's not stuff. It's farming right. versus, uh, harvesting right. that, you know, farming versus harvesting. We're not intuitive with it. We don't really own it. We're not really farmers. Uh, I mean, we're processors, you know, here at this company and, and Bart, you are, I mean, we're, you, you buy from growers. And so, yeah, I think there are things that we just don't intuit uh, very well, right. you know, like what should we do in the vineyard? What is the best month to start watering? Mm -hmm. Everywhere we go, we're finding that people um, don't have that correct. So one of the products we're, uh, have introduced in central California this year is an irrigation program that will take over and manage the irrigation. That's something you've been wondering about. I was going to say irrigation in Central Valley. I mean, turn off that big sprinkler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, when do you water? What is watering? How, how do you need to water? How can you use water? Um, right now, if it takes, what was the bloom to harvest date this year? 160? 158? 150 something. Yeah. yeah. High 150s. That's unbelievable considering that in Bordeaux, it's 120, 119. So there's no reason if this is as good as Bordeaux, how is it that we've gone from 120 days bloom to harvest for Cabernet to 159? And how could that be? If we were farmers, that would be intolerable. It's such an intolerably large number. If we had friends uh, in our, and we were part of the large, say in Europe, and we were part of the larger discussion, we were really fine winemakers. We would know this. They would just say, look at, you know, Bart, you can't do this. You can't have 159 days bloom to harvest. But if we're not farmers, we wouldn't even know, wouldn't even mention it. So what's happening is there's been creep, mission creep in California. And so now, you know, young graduates coming out of universities, they're used to these long number of days. It looks like mom's home cooking to them. Right. But actually, mm -hmm. it's a California that's in distress. The, you know, the physical environmental factors are hurting uh, the natural resource which is the grapevine huh so these are markers these are red flags these You're are saying. big red flags yeah. and so yeah there'll be you know this products uh, uh, that we're developing uh will be telephone based um you'll kind of get them there then they'll be backed up with our analysis and we can uh, test a vineyard section we could test every acre in a vineyard if somebody wanted to now that we can do is is some of this you know california being longer from um, to harvest date have to do though stylistically in that, um, you know, cause people are waiting for, um, flavors to develop as opposed to just picking from sugar. And in Bordeaux, they are kind of told when it's time to pick and they do pick at a lower, um, sugar. Mm -hmm. um, That's true. Yeah. I can't deny that. Right. That's there's it. also a cause behind that. You know, we didn't harvest, nobody was harvesting Pinot on Labor Day weekend you're this right. year. You're right. And why was the reason? It was because the acids were all way too high. Right. You're right. Yeah. 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 So there's, but so there's something behind that. Something's causing that. And right. it isn't just isn't random. Just, it isn't yeah. choice yeah. of the winemakers. Yeah. 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 I, don't, I think they I just wanted to hear that from, yeah. you know, from you guys that, mm -hmm. yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, so this is, you know, we don't have all the answers in the climate area, but we are weighted in. We're absolutely 100% sure this is the next frontier. Yeah. This is the big disruptor. This is the, and it's, there are triggers we, the winemaker cannot control. Again, the optimum temperature mm -hmm. of a grape. It's 16 and a quarter for Chardonnay. It's 16 for Pinot. It's 17.75. People don't know these by heart. Yeah. 
they should know these numbers because these numbers will change their fortunes. The amount of treasure they can extract from the wine industry is going to be a function of knowing all the optimum temperatures, the rootstocks, everything. You'd have to know this like the like playing cards, so that you know you're playing with a full deck of cards. Right. And where are they teaching this? So this is just this is the kind of thing that a small company like ours, after you know 24 years of looking at color flavor fragrance data, we become adept at managing big data, and so now there are more tools for us. Uh, there's new programming, even at the University of San Francisco. I was noticing that on the syllabus in the econ department, they're teaching the exact course for the person we need to hire. Huh. You know, you can see, wow, you know, we need the person who knows that language so that we can uh, harvest data from the industry and then make recommendations to our customers. So our customers are, are already starting to get contracts now that show our new climate product. We're sort of under the radar here. We'll, we'll have more to show someday in the future, when probably do, a year. When do most clients get started with you? Is it is it they say, hey, we're thinking about buying a piece of property. We, we want to start from A, or is it people that have mostly been going through 10 years, 15 years of business and say, we're just looking to improve or make changes? You know, the most advanced use, um, I can tell you that... Um, we were involved in the purchase of Ladera, the property, mm -hmm. up on Howl Mountain, uh, Odette, um, which is out there on the trail. Um, and um, people brought us uh, these properties to evaluate. And we bought all the wines that were made off those properties for a decade. Mm -hmm. And then we analyzed those versus their neighbors. And we could see which properties were benignly neglected, which ones could be turned into 100-point wines. So, you know, the first product out at Odette, uh, we did a big study of uh, Stag's Leap and that property, and we got a, we got a great deal on this property. Uh, and and the first product was 100 points, right? Yeah. I think we priced it as the cheapest product, Cabernet, and during the cycle, we got a 100-point rating from Parker and Spectator, and uh, the price then shot up to be the highest price product. And... and what we had done there, again, was scale production at a company, make one wine, one reserve, one Cabernet. And, you know, we would be fired. It's interesting to advise this for us because, of course, it's easy to trip, right? You would think it would be easy to fail. But actually, you get good at this, and now it becomes sought-after consulting. How do you do it? How do you do one wine? And so there's a whole management structure to that. It's been a great pleasure being here. Yeah. You're probably ready to um, ask I, it's us. Just, to, there's just so much information. So much we could do. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, for sure. I want to know, though, uh, why is there not a line out your door right now of people well, we have saying, 40, hey, 50 customers a year. Us up. Yeah, you know, we just, um, you know, it's a, we don't have a sales arm. You know, we're a pretty good sized company. We're, we're healthy, we're thriving. You know, people, people get bonuses here. It's a, it's a good place to work, right? Yeah. They get coffee nice from the location. boss. Yeah, it's I a guess, nice I guess what, creamed out office. Part of that is what I'm wondering is, is there just some people out there that don't want to hear that you can do this? They want to think that there's an artistry to it and that's why they're put on this planet is to be an artist and to paint this picture and for, for you to come and say, I can put a robot arm on that canvas 
and create the same picture that's going to look better. Well, no, we can't do that, but we can show them how to be uh, resilient business people, how to, where to take the, the processing risks, the planting risks. You know, I think we're just doing, we're doing more fine wine farming than the average person who might make those comments. I mean, we are, you know, mavens of luxury wine production using the, the oldest techniques. We don't have any additives in anything we do. We don't add anything. We are I think just, that's important for you yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah, we don't do any of that. All the products that we help make are made because it's possible to make them just using grapes. You right. don't even need, need yeast. You could just wait for natural yeast to take over. So um, filtrations is something that if they have small enough batches, you know, we will even go with no filtration. And that's an art. How do you do that? How right. can you not filter a wine? Uh, when do you have to do that? You know, when's it too risky? What is the smallest client that you have that, that, that I mean, the smallest in terms of um, production of wine? Probably Diamond Creek. A couple thousand cases. Yeah. Uh, but you know it's two twenty-five a bottle, so there's a lot of risk. You know, there's a great example. We we are not able to get all of production through, so to maintain those bottle prices, we get a couple thousand cases through uh, our system. But we're also selling off in the bulk market twenty-five percent. Hmm. So you know, we we also have a high rejection level uh, when they want to do a single vineyard. It's a little bit harder. Yeah. You can never get a hundred percent turn of your inventory grape into a skew, you know, a national release, say $90. Well, sometimes it's a bad vintage. Right. You have to live, you know, like a small wine farmer in France. I'd say the sweet spot with our client base is about 10,000 cases yeah. mm -hmm. total production. That makes it, it gives them a lot of freedom to be able to, to do the work, not only on the analysis and the extra work that's involved there, but also being able to have the flexibility to, mm -hmm. you know, push out, to, to declassify product and, right. and put it out there. Right. I think we have 9% of the uh, companies in Napa and we have 25, 30% of the dollars. We are so efficient. Our companies are, I would say they're running away with the profits. It's just true. Yep. Wow. What? And we don't need to brag that. You know, people say, uh, yeah. Who's doing this? And they say, well, no, I'm doing it. But, you know, we don't advertise everywhere we are. Sometimes we, we do a media blitz and we'll rope people into being in our story and they kind of fight back. <laughs> I have some funny stories about that. That would be a good, great second show. All the winemakers that fought back and, it was, and denied knowing enologics. Right. And what the media did when they found out. It was very funny stories. Now, if you had a magic wand, would you just make AVAs disappear here in California? I think I would. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this at grower meetings. I would create an agroecological area, uh, agricultural ecological area. And I would look at the old ecosystems that are around these regions. And I would circumscribe them using the physical environmental factors and the plant materials that are native to that place. And then I would say, this is the new boundary, and I would have genetic laws, and that you can be this product, but only, for example, in the Carneros, you know, what do you plant there? That region is, I'll say it, I would say it's failed its mission, its own mission. It has failed to live up to being Burgundy in America. Mm -hmm. And it said it was going to do that, 
and it was pre it was more aggressive than the current Sonoma Coast. So I would I would re-engineer uh, that region with the new varieties. I wouldn't plant Chardonnay. I wouldn't plant Pinot. It's too hot for Pinot. So what what do you put there? You know, it's clay. It's got hard pan at about six to eight feet. Um, some of the better regions are up uh, on the left bank of Highway 121, going to Napa from right. Sonoma, not on the right bank. You know, I mean, there's just, you know, there's enough information out there, but people um, don't, you know, people in an organization like that have veto power. So you could get somebody suing, you know, this is America, like have a grower within your own organization, sue your organization as you tried to do something. But I would say the ABAs are wrong. They're useless, close to useless because they don't have any marketing anymore. I mean, basically it's telling you where the wine is grown. Not really. Take a look. It tells you that the growers are political and have looked at a neighbor who's in who's in a pine forest, say, and they're in a sand pit, and they have looped their sand pit into the pine forest with a politically, in order to change their bottle price, and then that's hurt the the good winery in the forest, say. Right. And so you know, until it's not political and it's put together the way Bordeaux's put together, the way Burgundy's put together, you know, where they cut off the top of the hill, the bottom of the hill. And, they, you know, it's all these very specific, physically determined by the topography um, boundaries, natural boundaries is what I'm talking right. about. And then when you put, you know, a professional could, an ecologist could put together the right varieties for Sonoma Valley. Right. Sonoma Valley is a very interesting little valley. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a great Zinfandel area from... Boys North, you know, but from Boys South, it would be interesting. What should you do in there? Uh, are the soils, is the hard pan so difficult? That's sort of one problem in Sonoma town, the town here. Uh, it's right here where we are. The hard pan's only about 18 inches below the ground. Well, that's not good for any deep rooted plant material. Right. So, you know, you might want to do whites of some type out here in the Carneros. It would be beautiful if it was a big, successful, internationally famous white from the United States, like Napa is, it would just be a winner. You'd make so much money with that. You could run the yields at, you know, four and a half tons. There you go, I'm Brian. Looking at, I'm looking at Bart, Bart's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> Start ripping out Pinot. But do you, do you see that actually happening? And if so, what's it, sort of the time frame of, of us recognizing this? I don't know. Um, I think the first move is going to be made in Napa, and people are just watching. Most people aren't in the conversation. They're not part of a large conversation. They're not uh, particularly decisive. So I think you know the people involved in farming here in California are not uh, the same type of people that are involved in technology. You know where they don't mind being disruptive. They're, it's very conservative. If your neighbor does something. Uh, and he keeps it a secret. I mean, people don't like that. You yeah. know, jump over the fence and see, rip out some material and f take it down to UC Davis and find out what he's doing. So, you know, there's a lot of me tooism in farming. So it's a very difficult problem. Hmm. It's interesting. It's interesting, you know. Um, These are the big, big questions we're talking yeah, about right, here. Right. Giant. Right. Well, yeah, we're, we're the, I don't know if we're the fourth or the fifth largest economy in the world. It depends who you, who you ask. I think we're the fifth. <laughs> right. um, but, but agriculture here in California, this is it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, just the thought of no grapes, you know, from the grapevine north 
on Highway 5, um, and, you know, I'm sure what's there now, a certain percentage of them are raisins, but, you know, what does that all turn to? Is it all um, cotton and almond trees, you know? Uh, that would change our economy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it put could, a lot of pressure I don't think on. it'll be cotton. I think it could be trees because mm-hmm. uh, permaculture, which is woody plants. Right. I mean, grapes are sort of woody, semi-woody. They're woody. Um, but woody plants like trees use less water. Right. And the reason why I said cotton is because as a child, I, that's what I remember the Central Valley being yeah. is a lot of cotton and whatnot. And we were there recently and there was some, a little small amount of cotton, but coming back a whole bunch of trees and yeah. a whole bunch of grapes. Trees would be good for the Valley. It would change the temperature. It used to be oak right. trees from Sacramento all the way to San Francisco Bay. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's going to be fun, right? The nature of business is a problem and we're here to try and solve some. That's great. So yeah, Leah, why don't you guys give out your contact information for the website? If there are any, growers, winemakers, or people that are just interested in what we're talking about. Um, so we can do a little research. Yeah. We're at www.enologics.com, E-N-O-L-O-G-I-X. And you can call here 707-938-9463. I don't know. Doug might give out his cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get that far. That. <laughs> <laughs> Come on over and, and bring a wine and we'll analyze the wine for nothing. And, uh, and then we'll um, deliver uh, the data using our software. You pick it up on your phone. Would you do that for me? I actually made, sure, one, sure. I made one wine, my first wine. If I brought a sample, would you analyze it for Absolutely. me? Absolutely. Yeah. That yeah. scares the shit out of me. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> the last thing I want to hear is, oh... Well, we'll be when you meet us when you get your data. We're always wearing robes. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Now we got a lot of humor. Now here. I feel better, Leo. <laughs> Smoking ball, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this has been fun. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming on. It's yeah. an aspect of the wine business that n- nobody really thinks about, um, and I was exposed to it a little bit a couple times, and I find it fascinating. Um, I am one of those people that kind of says, I don't want to know what your numbers are. I just want to make my wine and, you know, feel that because I bought grapes from a very good vineyard that's well taken care of. And if I nurture the wine along, it will have a good spirit and be a good wine. Right. Well, you've um, made a string of these Chenin Blancs. I mean, yeah. It, um, you know, really legendary. Well, I don't know that I would quite say that. Um, <laughs> well, winemakers are but, drinking them. I hear about them all the time. Um, but thank you, Leo. Um, but I, you know, I've also seen, what the information that um, has been collected and how it changed the style of wines where I worked and um, and they were for the better. You know, we made better wines off blocks that never made very good wines at times and stuff. So, um, you know, understanding that is fascinating. So, it's, it's yeah. you know, I think probably that for me, what I noticed um, the difference between how Joe Benziger and Mike Benziger used it. You know, mm-hmm. Joe used the consulting with yourself and the discussions and the tastings very closely and the numbers. And Mike kind of early on, like wanted to get all the numbers and then still sent in some stuff for numbers, but didn't want the consulting part of it. He kind of wanted to use the, the data that you guys gave him and then um, look for similarities year in and year out and from different blocks. And he wanted credit. 
He wanted to, he, his personality wanted right. to represent that this was something that he made. Correct. Without right. any help. So Correct. the whole idea of not having help. And that's yeah. a very California idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it's fascinating. Fascinating. So, yep. Thank you both for being on the show. Yeah, it's amazing. Something that nobody knows about that affects all of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. You guys, thank you so much for opening okay. up the doors. Thank we you. really appreciate being here. And uh, you can see, you can listen to previous episodes of The Winemakers by going to radiomisfits.com, download uh, The Winemakers, or check out some of the other podcasts like The Bike Goes On. Uh, you can also hit us up on the Instagram at uh, Winemakers Pod and leave a review. We'd love to hear back from you. We will look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you.